Are you a clinician in primary care who wishes there were better resources to help you understand how to navigate the concept of triage in modern general practice? We'll boost your triage skills with our dynamic five-session live webinar course tailored for primary care clinicians. Led by myself and Dr. Ed Pooley from Difficult Conversations, this comprehensive training covers all facets of remote patient triage, whether that be digital, on-call, or other opportunities. Through this course, you'll gain practical knowledge, exclusive hints and tips, and direct access to myself and Ed through open Q&A sessions of the course. Elevate your ability to manage primary care challenges effectively and confidently, and most importantly, safely. Register now to transform your triage approach at bit.ly slash GP triage course for GP in capitals. We will definitely catch you then. As we come to a new financial year, everyone's got their view on what they should be doing when it comes to the general practice contract and the NHS and how we can improve it. Well, the Times have brought out their 10 point plan. And in this episode, we're going to review it, evaluate it and maybe restructure it as well as we continue to tech enhance your primary care and learning. Hello, EGP leaders. Welcome to this episode where myself and Andy are evaluating the Times' 10-point health plan for the NHS and stuff. How are we doing there, Andy? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well, Gandhi. It's um, it's going to be fun taking this apart, I think. Uh, another mm-hmm. week, another plan to save the NHS. And this time it's um, the Times newspapers go at, um, at sorting out the problems. Um, yeah, looking forward to it, Gandhi. Definitely. And it's rather interesting because this did come out with a bit of a fanfare. There was a bit of a publicity stuff that came out, particularly from the Times, obviously a big media organization and stuff. And it's a little bit different, I have to admit, that they have gone for some slightly different stuff compared to normal, I think, at least. Don't you? Yeah, it's it's an interesting list. And I guess we're, maybe we'll talk a little bit later about what they're trying to achieve by going mm-hmm. for this list and maybe this sort of selection that they've gone for. Um, I guess just so people know what we're going to be doing, there, there's mm-hmm. a 10-point plan that the Times have delivered. I'm not sure that they've put it in any particular order, but we're going to take those 10 points and put them in reverse order, starting with what we think is probably the the the, the, the least effective or less exciting yeah. of those points, leading up to what we think is the most exciting um, single uh, point that they have suggested. So it's going to be quite interesting uh, but i suppose before we start it may be worth just talking about what the times have done because mm-hmm. it's not just a story there's a bit of process behind it so shall we uh, yep. bring up so this is one of the stories so they've kind of had a series of stories that have been generated by this work that they've been doing um they have set up a commission to um look at ways of solving the problems facing the nhs so they've uh, there's some quite interesting names in this panel of commissioners that they've assembled to uh, contribute to this um, uh, to this work. Uh, zoom in a little bit. So rec- we recognise a few people here. So Claire Gerarda, former chair mm-hmm. and president of the RCGP. Um, I'm noticing Lord Lord Darcy um, of the the Darcy Centres and so forth. Mm-hmm. So he's former health minister. Uh, there is uh, Sally Warren, who's director of policy at King's Fund, for example, uh, mm-hmm. former boss of Marks and Spencers and author of a government review into the NHS. So it's people from the worlds of uh, business, health. I think there's a little bit of kind of um, academia. Uh, I think a little bit of sport as well. Uh, yeah. and nutrition. And Gray Thompson's and sorry, Baroness Gray Thompson's there. I can see that yep. name. Uh, I can see some other ones. So Dame Jane Dacre um, from the RCN. I can even see Dr. Mark Porter 
from the BBC podcast and stuff. Oh, there is. So, yeah, so some interesting names there, definitely. So it's an interesting group, and, and uh, what they say they've done is they've um, been into hospitals, GP surgeries, care homes, met with members of the public, you know, taken evidence, looked at mm-hmm. things that are done in other healthcare systems. Um, in different parts of the world, looks at looked at things that are done in dis- different parts of the UK NHS, um, and that's all contributed to uh, what is quite a long report. And we could do a you know a longer deep dive podcast on the whole report, to be honest, because it is quite in depth. But they have generated ten headline points. Yeah, and we're going to have a look at those right now, aren't we, Andy? We are. So shall, I mean, shall we switch and just sort of do them in in reverse? order then Mm -hmm. so because we've kind of played with the order a little bit so um shall we take them in turn so uh i'll take number 10 i guess what we felt was probably the the least exciting to to us as gps you know working in primary care so they they said they will incentivize nhs staff to take part in research uh, and put the case to research their patients giving 20 percent of hospital consultants and other senior clinicians uh 20 percent uh protected time for research Mm -hmm. um and I think research is important, but um, as you'll see, a lot of the other points they make are quite resource intensive as well. And it, it does mm-hmm. leave me wondering, actually, if we're taking 20 percent away from the resources that we have to deliver the other things, how how are we going to deliver uh, the yeah. rest of of the plan? Uh, you know, so um, so that's interesting. What did you think of this one, Gandhi? Um, I mean, it's no misnomer. I'm not the biggest fan of research. It's never been the part that inspires me, shall we say. But you're right. It's really important. Research helps determine what treatments we should be looking at in terms of things we need to consider. And obviously, you know, it can be really beneficial. But you're right. That 20 percent figure just speaks of unrealism to me um, in a workforce that is clearly challenged. I mean, if you take a that's a fifth of, of the workload that you know particularly senior clinicians um it focuses a little bit more on hospitals as well actually research is far better done generally speaking in general practice for majority of public health based research and that kind of stuff so i don't know it that's the reason i think we put it lower down i appreciate other people probably put it much higher up on their agenda but i guess me and andy are looking at this from the perspective of gps in primary care looking at the 10 point plan by the times yeah i mean and also Gandhi, i mean spoiler alert all all of these are quite expensive and and none of them talk to how they're going to pay for anything so just spoiler alert for people big Um, caveat there yeah it's all um quite aspirational stuff um Mm -hmm. do you want to lead us into the next one yeah so next one that we thought was a little bit lower and i appreciate some people may again put this one higher up but we felt this was the best place for it to put it so there's a guarantee that all children and young people requiring mental health support can get access to treatment within four weeks and rapid follow-up appointments, published data on waiting times for mental health services. Now, I think it's a really good idea to put this in. I think access to mental health um, support and stuff is really challenging. But I think when we rank this against some of the other ones, for us, I think it just came down a little bit lower down the list um, because of the, the just the other stuff, to be honest. It's not because yeah. this is not a good endeavour. I think it really is. Yeah, it was just the other ones ranked a bit higher for us individually yeah. as GPs. It, it's really, really important, but it was quite a, a narrow um, suggestion, mm. whereas some of the others are a little bit more um, broad in terms of their scope. So I think that's the reason why why it's here, but I think it would be an absolutely fantastic thing and possibly more affordable, um, although quite expensive, than some of the other measures that they propose. Well, that's interesting. It's probably the most realistic, uh, achievable out of the ones in some ways, which to some people working in those areas, they're probably thinking if that's the most achievable, what on earth are you talking about for the other ones? But we're going to get yeah. to those now, aren't we, in terms of number eight? Absolutely. So number eight is uh, establish a national 
care system, giving everyone the right to appropriate support in a timely fashion, equal but different to the NHS. So really what they're talking about here is we've got the NHS, um, the National Health Service. Um, care is uh, often is is funded in a very different um, mm-hmm. patchwork piecemeal sort of way across the country with people contributing, you know, their own, their own money, top up fees, you know, means testing local authorities. It's all very, very complex. And they're suggesting creating a national care system. I think th- this is, we, we hear about this quite a lot. Um, it, it feels like it would be quite expensive, like a lot of things on this oh, yeah. list to do. Um, if you think about the functioning of the NHS, you know, a lot of um, what slows down people's process, into and through and out of hospitals is the availability of social care you know it, it mm-hmm. can be difficult to discharge people back to the community safely unless there's um good quality care waiting for them and that means that those people are still in a hospital bed that means that people can't move up from a and e to hospital wards and that's why people are waiting ambulances and waiting for ambulances in the community it all knocks on so mm-hmm. um it's a good suggestion um there must be some really good ones waiting above it gandhi if that one mm-hmm. is only number eight so number seven was create a digital health account for patients called a patient passport. Access through the NHS app to book appointments, order prescriptions, view um, their records, test results, referral letters and contact clinicians. Now, this one's slightly interesting because actually that's pretty much what you can do through the NHS app already. I guess the reason why I thought it was slightly higher than some of the earlier ones that we mentioned about is actually making this mainstream, I think, needs to be a priority for the healthcare system because actually having a single doorway into the healthcare system, which is what the NHS Hub has meant to be, and encouraging people to use that will mean that therefore we can streamline the way that people access care. And actually, all those things are stuff that they said they could probably do. So this one's probably achievable and fairly quickly as well. So that was my view. What do you think, Andy? Yeah, I think so. I think the the kind of the word patient passport is potentially the little bit that's different from the NHS app in a way. And and whilst we don't know the detail behind this, that speaks more to a portable record or a kind of mm-hmm. interoperable record that can travel with people. And that's something that we're always banging on about. You know, actually, why does the emergency services use, you know, have visibility of a different record to general practice, which give yeah. you a different record to hospital? You know, actually, if if the data just traveled with the patient, that would be so much easier. So I think, I think it's a good one and, you know, potentially, potentially achievable, although we've been working towards that goal for, <laughs> for a long time. So it always feels very much so. It's like the, I think nuclear, that, like the nuclear fusion of, uh, of general practice. It's always it is. five years away. But I think that's the other thing with it as well. This is one of the ones that actually, if they manage to do it, which logistically sounds possible, actually the savings you would have in terms of, you know, potentially health outcomes for patients, but also cost savings you would have from delivering this, I, I think would be really valuable to both the healthcare system and the population as a whole. Hey-ho. Number six, Andy. Uh, tackle waiting lists by introducing a national program of weekend high intensity. And they've they've uh, they've called that HIT, like HIT training, um, mm. lists um, once a month in 50 hospitals to get through a week's worth of planned operations in a day and create a seven-day seven surgical hubs. So um, that's their way of clearing surgical case backlogs, I guess, um, which, you know, it sounds really sensible. There's a, there's a big backlog, big waiting lists, mm-hmm. um, you know, sounds sensible, potentially achievable, uh, apart from who's, who's going to who's going to do it weekends and who's going to pay for it of course but but sounds really good (laughs) it definitely agree i think you know anything to tackle the backlog would be appreciative i think 
there's some structure in there and how to do it. I think they haven't considered obviously the workforce costs and, and the, you know, the cost of the estates and all that kind of stuff to, to deliver that. Um, but actually, yeah, the, this, this would help so much of the other aspects of healthcare that we are currently struggling with, especially the backlog and things. That then raises what is the top five, and we're about to go into those right now. So number five was establish a healthy lives committee empowered by a legally binding commitment to increase healthy life expectancy by five years in a decade and reduce health inequalities to encourage a long-term approach with a cross-party agreement. Now, there's a couple of buzzwords in this one, which is why myself and Andy put this a little bit higher up. Um, absolutely, there was the health inequalities agenda on this particular one. And, and this is one of the main ones that focus on health inequalities, the cross party agenda, the fact that, you know, this would be signed up by multiple parties. So then it's less of a political football when it gets pushed around when it comes to election time. Um, and actually the fact that they are mandating that this is a government responsibility to deliver, you know, making it part of that agreement that they have to do this actually puts a focus on promoting healthy living and well-being and stuff for patients, which feeds into some one of the, one's coming up in a little bit but what do you think Andy? Yeah I, I like the word legally binding and we were debating what that actually meant and we hoped that that meant binding the government to meet these targets. Yes. <laughs> um, I think that's the only way it can really be be meaningful um, and I was quite interested that this is um, perhaps one of the only um, measures that is quite um, it gives a specific goal you know increase healthy life expectancy by five years in a decade so we can actually see if that's working mm-hmm. uh, and if it's delivering and actually once you've set that glo- that that main goal you know people then need to work out how to deliver it and it's probably about looking at a you know major disease strategy you know which you've heard about before mm-hmm. um you know and, and actually a lot of very specific actions can fall out of that big goal so that's why i thought that that was actually quite um quite a good aim and a good point um Moving up, so number four, um, introduce a no-blame compensation for medical errors with settlements determined according to need to ensure families get quick support and encourage the NHS to learn from mistakes. So, uh, I mean, this is quite quite high, really. Maybe that's us being defensive as as clinicians and, you know, often fearing these sorts of um, actions. Uh, but I suppose the process, whilst it uh, can be quite um, difficult for organizations and practitioners to go through it must be it's obviously even worse for families Mm -hmm. families can take a long time to get the financial support they need to carry on living their lives so so this sounds very sensible um to me i agree i think it's not just about protectionism though this is about patient care as well so one of the things that repeatedly we hear about when there are these you know slightly massive scandals that we hear about hospitals and and all that kind of stuff is down to the fact that there's very little whistleblower protection around in terms of raising these issues. And actually, you know, I I would see that that comes in part of it, that actually this would open the transparency and and raise the problems as well that come up so that hopefully then they can be fixed quicker and there's less of this need to hide stuff that we see from some organisations, unfortunately. Um, And actually that would mean to less pain and pressure that patients experience as a result of it and, and things so i guess that, that's why i wanted it higher up I, th- I think absolutely supporting clinicians to feel that you know um, that they're not going to be vexatiously targeted for doing some things you know um maybe not the way that people wanted or you know wrong in that sense because actually wrong is a perspective sometimes um but yeah i, I think we as ever, we need to learn from the mistakes um, and hopefully that would help to deliver that and stuff and things. 
That's different to number three, though, isn't it, Andy? Um, so this was me uh, talking. Um, so this was an interesting one, tackling obesity. So, you know, we know obesity is one of the biggest determinants of, of how ill health and stuff. But by expanding the sugar tax, taxing salt, implementing a pre-watershed ban on junk food advertising and reducing cartoons on packaging to minimize children's exposure to unhealthy food. This is basically a public health campaign to make us all healthier. Now, I know there are going to be people out there that are saying it's going too far. It's, it's you know, nanny, uh, state. know, nanny state. That's the word I was looking for and things. Um, but let's be honest. It works. It's one of the only things that works to tackle population based obesity. Um, so, yeah, it makes a no brainer for me on this one. Do you want to know how to use System 1 more effectively as a clinician? There are various different things you can look at, but there is only one course that can help you understand this and have all my hints and tips on how to use System 1 so much more effectively. And that's the System 1 course for clinicians. If you want to have a look at it, have a look bit.ly slash S one course, TPP and S1 in capitals. But if you do have a look at it, what will you get? Well, you'll get content and information and guides on how to use System 1 more effectively, from getting started with System 1, to navigating the patient record, to understanding the key parts like doing a consultation, as well as prescribing, clinical admin, communication, and various other information. And this includes my hints and tips on how to use System 1 so much more effectively so it saves you time and your patients stress in terms of their navigation with their patient journey. If you want to have a look at it, check out the link. As I said, it's bit.ly slash S1 course and the TPP and S1 are all in capitals and you will get access to all this content perfectly. Even better yet, there's a money back guarantee. So if you don't actually find this course has helped save you some time, just let me know. I'll refund you the course once you've completed it and stuff. Catch you then. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite a fan of this approach, really. Um, we've So we, we have a sugar tax already. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of people did oppose it, sort of nanny state sort of arguments. Um, I think now that it's come into place, that's all sort of gone quiet. And, and what's happened really is that rather than taking – and paying the additional tax, uh, soft drink manufacturers have reduced the sugar content of their drinks. We've all got healthier drinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not paying the tax um, to, to a great degree. Um, mm-hmm. We've all got, um, you know, they're still making money. They're still in business. We've all got healthier drinks. Uh, and maybe Coca-Cola doesn't taste quite as good as it used to. But, um, you know, people should be healthier as a result. So taking that principle um, mm-hmm. and expanding it to, co- to cover other areas, I think is really good. I think it is a, a little bit different to public health campaign in terms of this taxation approach is a little mm-hmm. bit different uh, and i think it's interesting and i think it, it will be interesting to expand that into other areas the other part of this is um is legislating for um advertising um mm-hmm. uh, in it's actually almost a little bit old-fashioned though isn't it a pre-watershed ban on junk food advertising so i'm not sure how many children watch live tv Gandhi, you've got kids in your household but um aren't they all watching sort of youtube and and, and so forth so maybe we need to understand what pre-watershed you know um mm. before seven o'clock in the evening means from a in a digital world but i'm assuming that they they mean to translate that concept into the digital world world but yeah really interesting and one of the only suggestions that doesn't look fabulously expensive so yes. um so number three 
There we go. Number yeah. two, Andy, tell it's us about me, this um, one. Yeah, is it reform the GP contract? So I think we had to put this near the top, um, mm -hmm. being GPs in terms of this is going to excite us, if that's the right word about contract reform, um, the most. So reform the GP contract to focus on wider health outcomes rather than tick boxing, ensure mm -hmm. patients get prompt appointments and restore continuity of care, encourage more super practices and create um, community health centres. So I don't agree with all of this. No. being mandated um i think what i like is a focus on wider health outcomes mm -hmm. um but that's quite hard to do you know actually you know quaff for all its ills focus on things that can be measured it can be mm -hmm. harder to measure wider health outcomes so i think that would be difficult to actually implement um i like continuity of care mm -hmm. being in there uh, sometimes in a resource limited system that runs at odds with prompt appointments you know, you can't mm -hmm. necessarily have your cake and eat it. Um, and then I'm not quite sure about more super practices um, and community health centres, you know, never sound like a bad idea, do they? But I'm not quite, no. we'd have to delve, delve deeper to see what they mean by that. What did you think about this, Gannick? There's a lot in this one. There is. And like you said, some really powerful points there in terms of continuity. There's, you know, changing the the way, the culture in general practice to move away from some box ticking for particularly for resources and that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, um, actually more community health centres is probably what we need. Services delivered closer to the community. I, I'd expand that to be, you know, moving secondary care into the community as well, which I think is always a positive agenda and part of the whole integrated care movement and things. But again, this is the one that talks about reforming general practice. So I guess for us as GPs, we're probably going to put this higher up on the list compared to some of other things. The question is how they do it as ever. That's the devil in the detail. Where we will probably find out some of the con con controversial number one, which could be considered, um, you know, doctors putting something that's very much on the doctor's agenda. Uh, yeah. Number one it's just struck me looking at this again. But uh, fire away. What did we say was number one? So number one, um, there's a reason why I, particularly I said I wanted this as number one. But to read it out. So write off student loans for doctors, nurses and midwives who stay in the NHS to improve retention as well as recruitment. Debt should be cut by 30% for those who stay three years, 70% for those who stay seven years, and 100% for those who stay 10 years. Now, as Andy mentioned, this is very much specific to, I guess, those working within the NHS. So less focused around the population and the public. But I guess the reason why I particularly would have put this one quite high up, we are in the midst of a recruitment and retention crisis in general practice, um, as well as the healthcare service in its totality. So what's one of the biggest issues? Loads of doctors, loads of nurses, loads of clinicians come out of training with huge debts. And actually, we want them to stay in this country. So how can you do that? Well, loads of people keep saying that we need to force them a mandatory service, you know, um, conscription style, let's, you know, uh, army style and stuff and things. Actually, I like this one because it incentivizes you to stay, but doesn't necessarily penalize you for going in the same way that a mandatory conscription style one would do or that you have to pay back the loans in its entirety because actually you're choosing then to take a life elsewhere in preference of the potential debts that you've accrued i think there's always the question about the amount of debt people accrue by training for these things so actually to me this does make sense and stuff and would help to tackle the recruitment and retention crisis that we face currently in the healthcare system so would potentially have fairly quick effect as well because we're talking individual money what do you think andy yeah i mean 
I, I, I can't I can't oppose it. Um, it. It sounds like a good plan. I think you're right. It's sort of it's it's quite quite smart in terms of, of meeting a few objectives in terms of trying to retain people within the UK um, NHS system, not going abroad, mm-hmm. not going into private practice. Um, it's so what I what I thought about this is it's so two things. Well, what does this mean if you sort of calculate it as part of people's pay package, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of the, in terms of um because this is sort of a bit like a pay increase really if you're mm-hmm. staying within the nhs and most people do stay within the nhs for the first few years after graduation so i just thought actually you know does this contribute to sort of a pay settlement or you know we're talking about industrial action at the moment this is the sort of thing that actually could be an outcome from industrial action this could be something that the bma yeah. could actually look at so i thought actually this sounds quite practical quite current i was what i was thinking and then part of it was also thinking oh is this a bit like indebted servitude you know when when you say well I'll I'll go and um, live in America, um, but you know someone pays my my ticket for me. Uh, this is mm-hmm. in the early days of emigration to America, and then you have to kind of work off the cost of your ticket when you're there. And uh, you know that was a sort of controversial <laughs> sort mm-hmm. of thing. Although you know, I guess a lot of people did it. Um, so it's almost like you know binding you to your employer, like a you know like you're a medieval serf. I don't know. I'm probably going over the top. It just sort of sounded a bit Ooh. interesting. It does. Um, so yeah. Interesting. So, um, so those are our, that's, that's us reordering it. Um, I think we had to put in some order, you know, they're all, yep. they're all pretty good. And, um, so shall um, we just quickly show them on the, the screen share as well, Andy? Cause I know we, we've talked about these rather than show them. So yeah. you know, if you did want to have a look at it, it, like we said, this is from the times newspaper, there's yeah. the 10 points. They're in a different order to what we've done. Cause we've reordered them in terms of, I guess, our priorities, yeah. but you can absolutely have a look at this. And you can look at the whole uh, report as well. Which the is, whole report, uh, yeah, absolutely. I guess there's the question of what's missing from this. So, yeah. I don't know. What did you think, Andy? Well, f- first of all, I was thinking, what's the purpose of this, right? Because they're not okay. saying how they're going to pay for it. So my first reaction was, uh, yeah, this is all very well and good, but it doesn't really sound achievable in an environment where we can't mm. pay for any of this, you know, potentially. Uh, but then I thought, actually, that's probably not the purpose of this. First of all, there might be more detail in the report, but I think they would have brought that forward into their summaries if there was about how to pay for it. But I think the purpose is to grab people's attention, to um, shift the framing, shift the debate, you know, onto new ground and into mm-hmm. new areas uh, and turn heads. So I think that's what they're trying to do. So I kind of just wanted to to make that point Um I guess, you know, rather than tell us, you know, being one of those reports that's fully costed and tells us how it's going to be afforded, you know, it's, I think it's about grabbing attention. So that was my thoughts. But um, did you have any other reactions to it, Gandhi, on first reading it? I think, like you say, it was just a little bit more out of the box than some of the standard kind of plans and, and stuff that we see. So, so in that sense, it was really nice and refreshing to read, to be honest. Um, I just wish they put something in there about how it would be paid for. Yeah. I guess so, but I, mm. I, I'm not sure that's what they were going for. You know, I think they were trying to just turn, yeah. turn, turn our heads, really. And actually, we've pulled some interesting ideas, you know, out, out, out of it, you know, which is interesting. So what, what was missing, Andy? What would you find? Let's go through a few things that we would put in uh, there if we could. So, I mean, if I, if I was, you know, health minister and that kind of stuff, the, the, probably one of the first things I would look at doing is actually scrapping prescription charges. Because I think that prescription charges in England in particular are a false premise. At the very least, reviewing the payment system. Because I think it's outdated, archaic, and frankly, not evidence-based either. And actually, by tackling that, I think we would see an impact in um, health outcomes, particularly when we're in a recession. Now, obviously, the automatic question will come, well, how are you going to pay for it? Well, 
we probably spend a good chunk just trying to get people to pay for things anyway. And the cost savings you would get from people who don't take their medications because they can't afford them, taking them and therefore being healthier because they're actually taking your medications, the big one being inhalers, I still think it's a travesty that patients with asthma and COPD do not get their inhalers for free compared to other health conditions, which those admissions cost the NHS so much more money. It's uh, anyway, I've I've ranted about this numerous times, um, but that would be the first thing that I would say could be addressed and changed and, and not currently in this plan or most other people's plans. That's a good one, Gandhi. Um, right, I ranted you, again, didn't I, Andy? I want to throw in a, a fr- friend of the uh, friend of the show, um, the uh, the much called for um, office for uh, NHS responsibility, or you know, um, you know, uh, an oversight um, body. Mm-hmm. So similar. So when the budget comes out, you have the semi quasi independent office of budget responsibility that that produces a verdict on uh, government uh, budgetary policy uh, and uh, seeks to um, uh, explain to us what the impact of that policy is. Uh, you know, and prior to that, pr- prior to the budget being published, you know, the OBR is involved, um, so the government knows what the OBR will say about the budget. You know, before it mm. comes out, and that informs how the budget's done, and it it tries to make sure that we have a responsible budget. When the OBR is not consulted, you have something like the Trust budget when they didn't consult the OBR, and it was a mm. it was a disaster. So I think actually health policy would benefit from um, an independent sort of oversight body um that just keeps um an eye and talks to the government um and government ministers about what they're proposing to make sure they fully understand you know best evidence-based understanding of the impact of what they're suggesting health is complex in some ways it might be more complex than than fiscal and monetary uh policy um but um i think it would be a good thing to try and implement so definitely agree (laughs) <laughs> yeah no absolutely agree on that one so the next two we kind of um were that were quite controversial um which one should we go for first andy the really controversial one or the slightly less controversial well, that's what we think is the re- so i'm gonna say we'll go for the most controversial one last and i think the okay. least controversial of the last two um is a debate around the affordability and scope of the nhs and how we pay for it so that's quite a leap right so i wonder what okay. the last one is um but um so what was missing from this uh was a discussion about how to pay for it and um, we've talked a number of times on the show about how mm-hmm. um, maybe there's a place for a discussion with the public, you know, honestly, about what kind of a NHS and health service can mm-hmm. we afford on, you know, can we get with current funding? And if we want something different, you know, how would we pay for it? What would that mean in terms of taxation or potentially even other funding mm-hmm. models? Um, you know, I think uh, that sort of debate is long overdue, but difficult to have within yeah the political environment that we have um so that was that one anything to say about that before you drop the most controversial one well uh, i think it's always going to be difficult to have that's the problem it's always in the too difficult to do pile so therefore it never moves into let's try and deal with it pile and that's the problem we're dealing with the situation with the nhs in particular that you know it is not affordable but there's no question about how we're going to tackle the funding, how we're going to tackle the process. You know, there's now questions about combining health and social care budgets, but actually that doesn't solve the problem. It just enhances it because it just shares the pain almost. So I think, you know, a, a valid discussion with the public about the priorities of healthcare, as well as explaining the pros and the cons and that debate about how is this going to be funded in the future needs to happen because we are in a situation where there isn't as many funds as people think um but at the same time what does this mean for the future because healthcare will keep getting more expensive 
That's the thing. It's never going to get cheaper, ever, ever. So we need to figure out how it's going to be paid for and things. So the last one we had, um, so interestingly, Andy thought this one was less controversial, I, more controversial. I think it's less controversial, but move sick note certification out of the NHS, that it's actually dealt with by a separate entity, um, an occupational healthcare service or, you know, whatever. But in terms of welfare state assessments to be done, not by the healthcare the, the NHS itself, not by general practice where the lion's share of that happens, because actually, is that a positive or negative outcome? That's something for you guys to think about, to be honest, and, and let us know down in the comments, I think. What do you think, Andy? Yeah, it's, it's it, I think it is fairly controversial. I mean, I think there are other health systems around the world. People often tell me that in Holland, um, mm. GPs don't do the uh, the sick notes, for example, that it's done by a different organisation. That always sounds quite attractive to me. I think there's always something, if, if it's, I would say, maybe actually very short-term sick notes for short-term illness. Maybe mm. the GP is the most logical person to do that uh, but i think beyond a certain period of time which is probably not that long then probably another organization you know would be better to to do that because you start to mm. run into difficulties with the doctor patient relationship if you're um, you know ch- challenging the nature of some some sick notes you know, that can be very difficult to do and the gp then becomes not the best placed to do that because there is a priority on maintaining a positive therapeutic relationship with the patient so uh, it becomes difficult i think beyond a certain period of time which is not that long so mm. that's a good one Yes. So the question is, I think, for you watching and listening to this, what do you think? What are the priorities of the healthcare system? Absolutely let us know down below in the comments. If you're, you know, watching this, if you're listening to this, send in some details. You can absolutely do that on our SpeakPipe. Um, so the link's coming up here, www.speakpipe.com slash EGP learning. And remember the G and the P are capitals, the rest is all lowercase and things. Um, and if you do want to let us know your thoughts on this, we would love, absolutely love to hear them, as well as what do you think should be healthcare priorities for the healthcare system and how do you think we should pay for it that's the debate we need to have any thoughts on that andy uh no i think we'll leave this with the viewers to answer those quite difficult questions definitely so let us know down below make sure you subscribe for the next episode because we've got some really cool stuff coming in the near future make sure you check last week's episode which was some mega updates on the end of general practice and we will always be here to help tech enhance your primary care and learning catch you later oh hello the agp learner i'm dr gandalf and i often get asked what kind of resources do you have to try and help those using emis because you tend to do a lot more stuff for system one and often i've really struggled to answer that question because let's be honest i don't use emis on a regular basis so therefore trying to help emis users is a little bit more difficult for myself and that really made me feel well not great so i kind of did something to try and help all those emis users out there I went and had a chat with one of my colleagues, Dr. Mike from GP on the Move, and him and I have created a course that you can use to help you use EMIS so much better. That's right. If you use EMIS, but you want to use it so much better, so much quicker, and in such a way that means you go home sooner, then check out our EMIS for Clinicians course. It's an online course that takes you through all the tips and tricks that Dr. Mike knows to try and basically mean you can go home quicker. That'd be a cool thing, wouldn't it? And guess what? It's currently on offer. So if you want to take advantage of this introductory offer and get access to it 
now, look at the links down below and check it out. Additionally, if you're a practice, network or wide area that wants more opportunity to use it, send me an email, egplearning at gmail.com. Let's see if we can help you out. And as I like to say, tech enhance your primary care and learning. Shall we get back to it? Oh, and if you wanted one for System 1 users, well, you know I've got you covered, haven't I? Check out the Learn System 1 for Clinicians course, bit.ly slash tpp s1 course.